Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Well, I said at the beginning of the day that uh, we could allow ourselves a tiny smidgen of smugness in our timing for not just the conference mobile world, but also the report that we've published. And I think as the day has progressed and everything to do with the mobile world has dominated the agenda here, we're we're certainly pleased about the timing. Um, This is the closing session. Uh, Once again, it's podcast. We are really very grateful to our partners because all our partners are our content partners. So it won't have escaped your notice that Edelman fielded a very fine chair this morning. Channel 4 fielded Benjamin Cohen and also Martin Fuel. And BAE and uh, RIM Blackberry and Vodafone have really been fantastic partners for us. We would not have had the confidence to tackle in print and in this forum a subject that was on their turf without involving them. So uh, I would just like to make that point. I'm now going to hand over to a person who is incredibly well suited to chair this closing debate. And uh, the fact that he is a veteran formerly of News International will be something that will uh, add extra kick, I am sure. But he has also now moved into the business of Uh, to use a phrase, policing ethics and standards a bit in journalism because he's Professor of Journalism at City University. He's raising his eyebrows, but you get the gist. So without further ado, to uh, manage this final session and introduce his panellists, please, I hand you over to George Brock. Thank you very much indeed, Julia. Good afternoon, everybody. My name, as you've gathered, is George Brock. I'm the Professor and Head of Journalism at City University, I had been under the impression that this was going to be the one period of 90 minutes in today in which I wasn't necessarily going to have to discuss phone hacking with one news outlet or another. Um, And I'm going to try and stick, at least in the openers, to the agenda that we have been given. The title of this session is What's Next? That allows, as you will immediately realise, all the speakers on the panel to talk about more or less anything they like But there are two things they can't be heard to say. Those are, I don't know, and wait and see. I'm going to introduce you to the panel in the order that they're going to speak. At the far end of this, on this side, is Matthew Kirk, who is the Group External Affairs Director of Vodafone, which he joined in 2006. Before that, he was a member of the diplomatic service. He was posted in places like Belgrade, Gibraltar, Paris, New York, and he was the ambassador to Finland. He will come first in our speakers. Next up after him will be Andrew Hawkins, here on my right. He is Director of Mobile for Skinkers, and he has spent, according to his biography, a career at the leading edge of technology. It sounds rather uncomfortable. Um, He worked at uh, Microsoft, if I'm reading this correctly, before he was at Skinkers. On my left is Rory O'Neill, Vice President of Software and Services in Europe of Research in Motion, better known to everybody as BlackBerry. He's involved in BlackBerry's um, key enterprise target segments. He'll probably be able to tell us what that means in English in a second. Um, Before that, he worked for GXS, I beg his pardon, and General Electric Company. To the other side of him is Simon Andrews, who is the founder of Addictive, 
mobile creative agency, launched in 2010. Um, he did modern media in Europe, and before that, he was at WPP Mindshare, among other places. Last, but not at all least, right on the end, is Derek Wyatt, who is a digital consultant and was a founder of the Oxford Internet Institute. He was a Labour MP from 1997 to 2010, and he played a lot of rugby in the past. Those, ladies and gentlemen, are your panel. They are under strict instructions to keep themselves in their introductions to five minutes each. I am a notoriously unsympathetic chairman. I warn them now. Matthew, you have the floor. Th thank you very much, George. And I will avoid your two um, uh, no-go phrases by recalling that famous quote that I'm very cautious about prediction, particularly when it concerns the future. Um, what we are living through at the moment is clearly a, an extraordinary evolution and a technology taking hold um, in people's lives at a speed that no other technology has in history. Um, we're also seeing the internet as an ecosystem starting to transfer from uh, the fixed line internet that we've all grown up with to the mobile internet. Um, the majority of the world's population will only ever experience the internet as a mobile internet. Um, and so as we're seeing ourselves making that transfer, this extraordinary growth, we're also seeing an equalization in terms of access to technology, but not yet access to information uh, happening uh, across the world. Um, so that's all, that's all very exciting. Um, for companies like us, it poses a huge number of challenges, technology challenges, uh, selecting the right technology, deploying the right networks, all that kind of boring stuff, which is necessary to make it all work. Um, and which I wasn't proposing to talk about uh, at all uh, this afternoon, unless you want me to. For me, the, the real challenge in, and I'm saying this without uh, a word of irony, given the events happening in the news today, the real challenge in all of this is to build uh, a system which is both pervasive across the world in the way that it can easily be technologically, but is also local and personal in what it does, the difference between the big screen internet and the small screen internet is that the small screen internet is very personal. It is in your pocket. Um, and it's doing what you want it to do in a way that the big screen internet can serve an awful lot of people. The device, the connection, all the rest of it can serve an awful lot of people. And you personalize it as you use it. Um, the second thing, though, is uh, about trust. And, and your ability as the range of services and the range of things that you are consuming uh, through the device in your pocket um, becomes more sophisticated, more personal, uh, as you get into uh, payment systems, healthcare systems, um, family communications, all these kinds of things. Your ability to trust what's happening out there in the cloud, the famous cloud, um, with your life uh, being lived through your mobile device is, I think, one of the fundamental challenges for all of us in the industry, wherever, in, in whatever part of it you work. Um, and certainly for us as a company, this is one of the things that we spend most of our time um, worrying about, thinking about, and working out how to build systems which are both easy to use and very robust in terms of how they look after people's data and lives and so forth. 
Looking at the emerging markets, and as I said, I think this is a wonderful moment when uh, we are actually bridging uh, the digital divide between north and south. We're also, um, in many ways, bridging a rural-urban divide, particularly, again, in the emerging markets. There's a huge difference between the Internet as we experience it and the Internet as you experience it in India or Africa, in that the vast data resource that we have doesn't exist in India or Africa relevant to the communities, uh, the individual societies, and so forth uh, that people are, are living in and experiencing. The information collection, the input, uh, which has happened for us largely because the information already existed and it has been digitized and made available, um, and collection of it has been made very easy over about a 20-year period, that has barely started in the emerging markets. And, and so this, this process of creating content which is personal, which is useful, which relates to your community and your society, is in a very, very early stage in, uh, in emerging market countries. But that creates an enormous opportunity as well, and, a, and another enormous opportunity of, uh, of levelling uh, across the globe. Because the, the availability of the technology, and as we were seeing in the last session, uh, a relatively easy-to-master set of skills can make virtually anyone a web entrepreneur on the mobile internet. And I think we will quite quickly see, as the technology becomes affordable and the connection becomes affordable uh, in the emerging markets, people will start to create services to amass content and so forth which is relevant to their communities. And as they do so, I think the whole uh, DNA of the internet, which is fundamentally Euro-American at the moment, will start to shift. Um, and it will start to become much richer, richer in language, richer in content, uh, and, and slightly more difficult to manage in terms of our consumption of it. That comes back again to the session we had before and to um, making sure that it is as easy as possible to access the things that you want to access in a reliable way. Um, and, and I think the, uh, the industry that sits on top of the networks and on top of the uh, devices, which is about presentation, uh, consumption, interaction, and so forth uh, across the devices, which is starting through the app world uh, to develop um, some very interesting new capabilities. Um, that has a very long way to go. We're in the early stages um, as, as we see how systems can come together and you can start to uh, book your flight, check in, have your, um, your boarding pass on your smartphone and all the rest of it, um, and actually do a whole series of transactions which used to be different transactions with different systems at different times in different places, all from wherever you are as you're on the move uh, and make it all work. The interaction between the digital and the physical world, um, as we start to see more connected machines, connected systems um, operating alongside uh, the communications, person-to-person -person communications, which we have traditionally done, offers an enormous new uh, range of possibility uh, to make our lives more efficient, uh, more intuitive, more personalized, um, and in doing so also to help us to some extent tackle climate change by making the systems that support us much more efficient. So a very exciting future, um, and one with lots of possibility for many, many people around the planet. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Andrew. Uh, well, so first of all, let me tell you the perspective that I'm coming from. I work for a company that build mobile apps. So I come from the perspective of the technology 
that powers a lot of the experiences that we're enjoying today and experiences that we'll enjoy in the future. Um, so before I uh, guess at what's coming next, uh, which is obviously all it can be at this stage, I'd like to tell you what my view of mobile is. Because today there have been a lot of conversations that have been quite broad, that have dipped into mobile and talked about mobile. But for me, mobile is the technology and the services that enable me in the contexts of my day-to-day life. So as I move from waking up in the morning to going to bed at night, there are lots of things that I do. And for me, as somebody in this industry, mobile is how I can enable communication, utility, in all of those contexts. And that's how it, sep- how it differentiates from um, the fixed web that we're all very much used to. So I think mobile is something that I do whilst I'm doing something else. And my uh, conjecture about where this is all going will be, f- will be within that frame. So in the reasonably near future, so let's say within the next 24 months or so, uh, mobile will start to focus a lot more on bridging, as, as we've already said, the, the physical and the digital worlds. Looking back, mobile has been about presenting content in a new form, but really that's just different places of consuming content that you might otherwise consume on the fixed web, let's say. It's going to become much more about how do I bridge my presence in this room, my, my proximity to other people or other devices with the digital world that I also participate in. And some specific segments that I think will um, benefit from that, uh, that transition, certainly retail. Uh, the majority of retailers out there have been very public about the fact that they don't yet have a mobile strategy. Uh, their competition do in many cases, and that's something that they're going to need to catch up with. Uh, And there are some exciting scenarios around retail that are already starting to emerge. Extended packaging, for example, so that when you're in a store trying to make a purchasing decision, you can learn a lot more about the product that you're stood in front of, your friend's opinions, look at how-to videos of how to erect a pushchair if you're in mother care, for example, um, really bring um, value to that context. Payments are predicted to be um, very large. Your, Your mobile device is a mechanism for paying for goods and services predicted by the Yankee Group to be over a trillion dollars by 2015. Um, Lots of services launching over the next six to nine months. And actually in developing worlds, um, a lot of those services already uh, already in place. Second screen, bringing additional value to um, the TV viewing experience, extending and complementing the the experience of consuming media on other devices. Um, Obviously, social um, is something that's already been discussed at, at length today. Um, and there are, there are other uh, scenarios that we're going to see emerging over the next two years. I think looking out a little bit further, we're going to become more passive participants in these mobile scenarios. Um, it won't be something you actively do. It will be something that happens whilst you're out and about living your, your daily life. And I think there are four key pillars of the platform that need to be in place before that's going to happen. The cloud is something that we've, uh, we're becoming familiar with but the cloud as a place where applications can execute on your behalf um, is something that uh, will become important. Ambient computing, so having your, uh, being able to communicate digitally with your environment down to the clothing that your friends are wearing if you want to, oh, I like that jacket, I'll buy it as well, being able to relate to that um, piece of clothing very directly. Um, and also something that uh, I think will be a huge challenge, but hopefully one that we can get over, is having a a digital representation of me 
in the cloud where these applications are executing that allow me to be um, that allow me to participate digitally in a more disconnected fashion. Now, the privacy issues there are obviously immense, and something that I hope over time we'll be able to get over. Um, but there's a uh, the the fallout from that um, that transition is something that could bring an awful lot of value to us. Um, I mean, the Kindle is a good example already of a service that's heading in that direction where across a number of devices, and actually the device doesn't really matter to me, I can pick up a book that I'm reading at the page that I finish reading it um, without having to tell it anything about myself other than who I am. So I could go around this room, grab somebody's Kindle and start reading the book that I'm reading from the same page. And that's because my identity, my licenses, my, um, my applications essentially are all executing on my behalf in the, cra- in the cloud. Um, uh, I think the device will obviously always be something that I carry around, but it's more likely to be my, my representative in that um, cloud execution of applications that, and scenarios that happen on my behalf. So it'll be my way of expressing my location, my presence, my mood, my proximity, uh, but won't necessarily be the place that these experiences um, execute. And there are lots of scenarios that, that fall off the back of that that, are, that can be quite exciting. Um, one in particular where a lot of these things need to happen is um, there's a healthcare scenario in the University of San Diego already um, working on this where there's an implanted glucose monitor that measures on a 15-minute interval as a, as a diabetic um, how, how my vital signs are. You know, am I heading towards a, uh, an episode? And it communicates with a, with a smartphone uh, and it's the smartphone that does the computation on behalf of the user, but it can also alert people that need to be alerted should an episode kick off. And um, I think those passive but useful um, supporting uh, scenarios that help me in the context of my everyday life, that, that's the direction I see it heading in. Oh, thank you very much indeed. Rory? Yeah, I, I don't... Um disagree with a lot of, as you would expect, with what Andrew and Matthew say, right? I think um, as I'm third in line, I think I'll just take the liberty to be a bit more of a drama queen and ham it up a bit. Um, the future of the internet is mobile. Like, give it up. Um, the, the, the user experience that consumers expect, that users of smartphones and tablets expect, is the future of the internet. Um, and that's not just a BlackBerry perspective. Like, I mean, look at Facebook, right? Facebook predicts that by uh, 2013, it will have more mobile users than desktop users, right? The future of the internet is mobile. And if you look through the various ages of experience that the internet's delivered, it's moved from pure connectivity. When the powers that be decided to stop fighting in the Cold War, they got computers to talk to each other. It was about connectivity, then move through a flow of information, the information superhighway, the directories, the search engines, way before Google when there was Lycos and Yahoo and all that kind of stuff around. That was the age of information. That quickly transformed into content and commerce, uh, whether that be like around the 1999 timeframe when every business had a dot-com extension or the brands like eBay persuaded us that we could buy online or um, uh, yeah, lastminute.com just you know, persuaded us we could travel online. That was the content and commerce experience. And we've quickly evolved through there, through Twitter and Facebook, into a community experience. And that's where the internet is right now. It's moved through those four very distinct phases. And the future of the internet is going to be the access that you get and the experience that you get in your mobile. 
and to sort of you know call out three particular points in that, right? Like the first, and I'm sure you guys have talked about it a lot today, is the element of social. Um, social messaging, social networking, the social internet will be the first pillar of how people use things in a mobile capacity. Um, we have this like funny little service on our BlackBerry devices called BBM, BlackBerry Messenger. And in the space of four years, there are 45 million users of BlackBerry Messenger. We move over a billion messages per month worldwide. When Iniesta scored his goal in the World Cup final, traffic on BBM went up 3,000% three minutes after the goal was scored. Right? Social messaging and the way that communities will connect is already live on mobile. Um, there are millions of users on BlackBerry and other platforms that are using Facebook clients, Twitter clients, to access, then their only access to those communities is through their mobile. Um, because, you know, again, as many of the panelists said, it's what you carry with you. And it's not just messaging that's social. Uh, gaming is social. Right? We're all very well aware now that there are 75 million users of the PlayStation network. Whether we're aware for certain reasons or not is a different question. There are 25 million users of Xbox Live. Right? Xbox Live arguably was the first social gaming platform. And the reason that gaming's always been social is because you can't invite 1,000 people around your house to play a game. But you can do it online. And then uh, lastly, on the social front, well, music's headed the same way. Um, yesterday I was on a panel with... Uh, uh, Fergal Sharkey, you know, ex-undertones, right? And like uh, Fergal said something very apt, I thought, which was um, the music industry is finally waking up to the fact that it has to serve up content, not in the way that it dictates to consumers, but in the way that consumers want to digest it and how they want to digest it. And there's various business models there that have to evolve in order for the music industry to not dictate what format people will buy their content, at what time in the day people will buy their content, right? They have to kind of wake up to that. And I think, you know, the future of music on the internet isn't me looking through a kind of a desktop portal or a web-based portal to configure the playlist I want to play and then side-docking it to the, wire, you know, to the device I want to carry around with me. The future of music is highly social. It's going to be shared. It will be discovered in a highly social way. It will be discovered across communities in the way that we recommend restaurants um, using the internet today. So that's kind of, you know, the first pillar is around this concept of social. And the second, I, I agree with the previous panelists, is around context. Right? And context um, changes rapidly from, from how you perceive it. Um, most of the richer applications that are available on mobile platforms today integrate with some feature or capability or capacity of the phone or the tablet. Um, I apologize for this, but I'm an Arsenal fan. Right? That's two references to football. I apologize. Right? So I'm an Arsenal fan. Um, one of my favorite applications on my device is because I use the Sky Sports application, which I hope isn't a a sin in here, right? But like, um, the reason I like that application is because it's integrated to my Twitter profile, it's integrated to my BBM profile, it's integrated to my inbox so that when Arsenal sell a player, I find out about it in the way that I want to consume it. That's integrated experience in terms of context. And like the other panelists, we're not a million miles away from consumers interacting with brands and interacting with content in a highly contextual way with the devices that they carry. In Korea... Tesco's are already putting up walls of pictures in tube stations of products that consumers then take a QR code, and guess what? The delivery vehicle delivers the content that they've purchased or the produce that they've purchased back to their homes before they arrive. Right? We're not too far away from being on garage forecourts, filling up our cars with a petrol, and content and routes and maps being pushed to us so that we can drive off and head in the right direction. Right? That's the future of the mobile internet. We'll deliver that rich context. And then finally, I think the third area will explode around commerce. 
um, just like back in the, you know, the age of com- content and commerce on the internet, um, we're going to see a huge proliferation of commerce um, in, in the mobile world. And you know, to pick up on one of the points, um, I'm not sure actually consumers care right now about privacy and security and identity, even given the recent hacks that there has been in our industry. Um, I think they just expect it. And you better expect that as you move data and personas and identity to the cloud and you move them onto mobile tablets and mobile smartphones, that that privacy and that identity of of user information needs to be protected. Um, There are 300 mobile phones left in London taxis every day. The amount of personal information and the amount of business information that can be left on these devices is incredible. And you better make sure, as you build out commerce services and content services, that privacy and identity of information is is paramount. And I think kind of um, sort of last two two points, I think if we think about the age of access on the internet and the fact that it will be mobile, um, I think connectedness is also really important. Um, I don't think it's down to vendors or parties to dictate how people will consume content. I don't think it's down to vendors or industry players to, to mandate how content should be delivered or how content could be bought or consumed. I think what's important to us is that that, that mobile experience has to be connected with the things I already hold, whether that's my TV at home, whether that's my car, um, or whether that's my home, home entertainment system. Right? I should be able to plug and play the content and the experience that I have from the internet into any particular physical, um, physical system that I've already, already acquired. And then sort of last point is, um, like I think we're kind of, <laughs> for want of a better description, we're all kind of in this together, right? This isn't a, uh, uh, a, a kind of industry that's dictated to by technology, right? Some of the, the latest mobile technologies have been looking around for 10 or 12 years looking for a use case, right? This is fundamentally about user experience and content and services and devices and networks all have to coexist, to deliver a very rich and compelling user experience. Nothing goes in the bin faster than a mobile phone, smart or otherwise, that doesn't work. Nothing gets deleted faster than an application that's difficult to use. We in the mobile industry have gotten to a place where we've almost created the most disposable industry in the history of all time, where there are millions and billions of applications that are getting deleted every day because they don't do what users expect. So fundamentally, we've got to kind of like put all these things together to render this connected mobile internet experience that delivers a very, very rich user experience as, as consumers look to absorb our content. Son, I always worry when you've got to look at the future and try and predict the future. Um, I grew up watching Tomorrow's World, so I should be going home to my mile-high block of flats with my jetpack now, and it didn't happen. Um, and the mobile industry has got a track record of getting things wrong and not predicting things very well. So when Rackle, the company that became Vodafone, were writing the first application for a license back in the 1980s, they put in there that they could see a future when as many as 600,000 people in the UK would have a mobile phone. The Treasury thought they were bonkers, you know, ludicrously optimistic. Nokia, when they were building the first GSM phone, were going through the specs they'd been given and found this strange little thing that required to have a bit of functionality, you could send a message of 160 characters from the network to an individual. Now, they're trying to save time and money, wanted to get rid of that, because who the hell wants that? But you know, weren't sure if it was mandatory or optional, they left it in. And SMS is the most single profitable part of the, you know, the mobile phone business. So we don't have a great track record of getting stuff right. But I'm not allowed to say I don't know. What I think is really, that if you look around the world, there's a great quote from um, an um, 
interesting sort of sci-fi writer, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. And if you look around at Japan and Korea, and we heard about, you know, in Korea you can buy, have your shopping done by using your phone to scan something in, in, the, um, in the subway. Japan has a very sophisticated um, you know, usage there. If you want to travel on the tube, your Oyster Club is on your phone, your gym membership's on your phone, your wallet's on your phone. 35 million people use that service right now in Japan. In Africa, in Kenya, there's no banking system, but Vodafone have a service there called M-Pesa, where a third of the population use that to do banking. And about 25% of the GDP of Kenya flows through that system every day. So things are happening around the world already using mobile. So what I would argue is I'm not interested in what happens next. I think there's plenty of stuff right now that's available in big numbers. That's important to us. So here in the UK, around a third of the population have got a smartphone. Large number of people getting tablets. You see a Kindle on the tube now, all mobile devices. So people have got these devices, and they're using them. You know, half of you now take advantage of those devices to check your email, to go onto Twitter, check Facebook, all those little habits, those new behaviours that have grown up. If you're watching Newsnight, you, go onto, you, know, you pull your mobile phone out and see what's trending about um, the news of the world story on Twitter. So you've got all these new behaviours starting to happen, and that throws up for people in my business, where we're trying to find ways of brands taking opportunity mobile, new situations for commerce. But the thing that's really interesting that we find so exciting and so motivating is that mobile, it disrupts things. So think about banking example. You talk to 18-year-olds now and try to explain why a payment still takes three days to get from one bank to another. They have no understanding of that. Some of them know if you have an iPhone, you can transfer money. If you've got a PayPal app, I can transfer money instantly from my iPhone to your iPhone just by bumping them together. So banking's been disrupted. Jack Dorsey, who started Twitter, has a startup in the States called Square. And basically, you send away two bits of information, your social security number, you get back a little white piece of plastic, you stick it on top of your mobile phone, and you can take credit card payments. They take a cut of that. They're doing $4 million a day already, just been invested at a valuation of um, billions of pounds. It's disrupting the industry. We've heard talk about commerce before. Um, you know, I think we're probably all starting to do this now. You know, you're in John Lewis, you're looking at something. I wonder what the price is on Amazon or what the reviews say about it from there, and you buy it from there. So that's already happening from now. Booz Allen have got some data out. This year, in Europe, they predict mobile will influence $110 billion worth of sales. So it's not, not buying things, but you know, you'll check that price You'll send a picture to your friend from your phone, should I get this shirt or not, etc. So this isn't starting to happen in quite a big way. And Conrad Ellis talked about cloud computing. I think that's the big area that is here right now in big numbers, but we haven't really thought about. So think about search. If I'm looking for the Channel 4 address, I type it into Google. Well, Google have worked out that the average search term on the desktop is three words. On mobile, because it's quite clunky, it's about two and a bit words. So they're trying to work out, well, how do we solve that problem? So the first thing is voice search. So I can speak into my phone, let's say Channel 4. My mumbling northern accent is spread across the world to a huge data farm, and they work out what they think I mean. It comes back, search results are found from there. I can stand outside Channel 4 and take a picture of the building with my um, camera on my phone, and Google has visual search. It looks at that picture, whizzes it back to a data farm, cloud computing, compares it to the billions of images, and says, oh, that's the Channel 4 building on Horsley Road. So these things are already out there now. Things already in big numbers. People, if you've got a Google app, you can do these things right now. There's a great um, variation of that. That um, you know, So being Brits, we're not great at uh, languages. 
You can speak into your Google phone. It will translate it into whatever language you want and then speak it to the person there. So I can order two beers in Spain. It will translate it to dos cerveza. allows the person then to pick that up, answer back in Spanish, translate that back to English. Happens now cloud computing. So there's our favourite example. Anyone here play Sudoku? Okay. So the Google app, you take a picture of a Sudoku puzzle. It recognises, first of all, it's a Sudoku puzzle. It says, would you like me to solve it? It then, using cloud computing, solves the puzzle. Yeah. These things are available now in big numbers of people. So our opportunity is to take advantage of these, to find out you know, how, we can actually, how people are using them, and catch up and use this technology. We don't need to worry about what's coming down the line in two years' time, because there's plenty right now. The future's here now. It's up to us to see that opportunity. I've written down so far mobiles as a, of the future as a bridge, enabler, experience, disruptor, Derek, what's your buzzword going to be? <laughs> I don't have a buzzword. Um, I think what I, knowing, if you know my background, the things that interest me most are how the public react to things. So although there are half a million apps, there are very few health and education apps out there. So I spend my time looking at that area, wondering why or why not. So when you look at your phone... Mostly, if you, if you have apps, so if I, I'm sure you know what an app is. But actually, what people haven't used is the camera at the top uh, or the earphones. And so what I have seen recently, so here's my camera. So if I could get you just to put your finger there, I can, through this app, now read your temperature and I can see your blood and I can see your stress level. That, that is possible. I've seen the apps. These will come to market this year. They are stunning. Second app I've seen, which makes me laugh a lot, uh, you'll understand why. I put these headphones on, I put this here, I put the app on, and you're pregnant, I can show your baby. I, this is a scanner using this. So there are going to be the most fantastic changes to the way in which health is delivered around the world. Imagine being able to take your temperature. Imagine ringing your doctor saying you're not very well, and the doctor can say, well, hold on. I've got it in the cloud. Where are you? What number are you? I've got your access. Oh, you are ill. You better come in. So if you can do that now in 18 months' time or 24 months' time, if that's how far we can look ahead, what can you do for heart or cancer or diabetes? Actually, an app for diabetes I have seen. So this is, this is pretty traumatic, I think. This is very exciting. Now, on the education side, if, if you can understand what I've got here, it's not easy to see, I know. But you know how if you have favourite apps, you like to put them into here, don't you? Into little blocks. So you've got nine for, well, I don't know what that one is. Uh, that's travel, so all my underground and all my Heathrow, and so I've got it all there. Well, if you put a search app into there, for instance, if this was just news, I've got 18 already on news, and, it, and I could put a search app in there that just said, I only want information on X and Y in the news. So it aggregates HuffPost, Evening Standard, all those apps, and gives me my own news, fantastic. So I think search apps will become quite critical and almost biographical. They will, that will develop. So how about then, if you look at schools, very badly taught maths and sciences. So it must be possible to create a maths of algebra, trigonometry, to get the drift of each one, where you take the very best teachers you actually film them teaching, 
you, you slice that to 90 seconds for the YouTube space, you get an 0800 number homework club between 4 o'clock and 7 o'clock. When a kid cannot or is badly taught, there's no excuse. They can go home, they can log on to the maths app, they can ring a teacher on an 0800 number saying, I'm stuck, or actually, they can go to the maths Facebook homework club and go and look there and compare and contrast. And I think it's possible for someone like Pearson's, who have both an examination board, have Dorling Kindersley, have fantastic education experience, to say, you know what, we should do a virtual academy. And we should put the whole curriculum of GCSE and A-level up as apps. And I think that will happen within the next two years. And that will be absolutely breathtaking. Because no longer will children who are badly taught, they've got an alternative, which is the best teachers in the world on an app. So I spend my time trying to persuade investors and, and other people to come and do that. And I think there are some fantastically exciting things on the health and education market. In terms of games, which someone has mentioned, I actually think what will happen is games and music will merge. So that when you want to play a game, either with yourself or against somebody else in, in the cloud, you'll be able to put your own jukebox of music up and you'll be able to have your own music on while you're playing the game. And I think that is... I've seen that already uh, in, in Chiswick. And I think once that breaks, that will be the biggest selling game in the world. Uh, I think that will be very, very powerful. In terms of technology, this is too heavy. This is the, the, the Apple, this is the iPad 1. The, the, the iPad 2 is okay, it's thinner. But the Kindle is fine, but actually most people want to put it in their pocket. This is too small. This is too big. So there's, there's a market for something in the middle. Why has Apple ordered 3 million 9-inch screens, which they now deny? But I have found that they have ordered them from the, uh, from the wholesalers in Taipei, in, in Taiwan. So something's coming down, not just iPad 5. Maybe there is, the phone is what we want in here. You know, we don't want two, we want one. One for the handbag and one for the inside pocket of our jacket. So these aren't quite right yet, I don't think. In terms of business, can Nokia, can BlackBerry and can Motorola survive the next three years? It's going to be painful. Has Microsoft... Uh, is, the, is the reason why Microsoft have become so interested in Nokia, is it because actually they may make a bid? You, you have to try to sort of work out what's coming here. You've got an iPhone system, you've got an Android system, you've got a Windows system, you've got a BlackBerry system. Can you have four? Now, I know one person who's made the language possible so that you don't have to have designed four sets of apps. You can have one language over the top, and it doesn't matter what, what you've got. That will be out, I think, this year too. But, but I'm just thinking out loud, can, can you really have you know, five or six operators? Are you going to have to have two or three? Uh, and lastly, uh, um, Matthew, forgive me for quoting this, but a, a month ago, uh, Sarkozy, so I do the politics now and governance. Sarkozy s said, he called actually his own version of the G8 without telling too many people, but he called an EG8 in Paris. Uh, the G8 was in Deauville, and he summoned the world's... Well, he summoned the main players, anyway, to Paris. Uh, and there was a debate, because what Sarkozy would like is some sort of governance regulation. And this was poo-pooed, of course, by Mark Zuckerberg and the Google people, and said, no, 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 free market, free market, da di da But actually, to my great surprise, two days later, I, I'm, I'm reading this. We need to feel that our privacy will be safeguarded and that personal data will be secure. 
We need to be confident that our children will be safe. Owners of content need to know that their copyright will be respected. And in any civilised world, governments with proper democratic supervision need to be able to safeguard their citizens' security and fight cybercrime. Who is this sensible person but the chief executive of Vodafone? And he wrote in, in the FT on the 6th of, of June an article saying, actually, we do need to do something. And one of the things I've been trying to do for the last year is create an, in, an Internet Policy Institute. There needs to be somewhere for the citizen to come that gets independent advice. And, you know, the more I talk about it, the more I get closer to getting the money. But at some stage, I will find the money. I found the money 10 years ago for the Internet Institute at Oxford, and I'm determined to do this. But there is a space for that, for the consumer, to want, needs it, but also governments need advice because they are always behind the curve. Thank you very much, Derek. Before I open to questions, I'm just going to pick up a theme that appeared in the presentations by three of the five of you, which was, roughly speaking, privacy, security, and safety. And I'm just going to put a single question to all of you for a quick two-sentence answer. Has hardware and software and the technical opportunities, have they outrun what people have done on security, safety, and privacy? Yes and no. I mean, there are, as you aggregate enormous quantities of information together and make it searchable and that kind of thing, so inevitably the boundaries between uh, the things about yourself that you might want to keep private today or indeed the things about yourself which you might be quite happy to share today but want to keep private in the future um, and uh, their visibility to other people have become blurred. The technology can cope with that. I think the challenge is is actually more a behavioural one uh, and it arrives in in a number of ways. First way is that the way that we are used to safeguarding our security on the fixed-line internet um, has within it a lot of acceptance of personal responsibility uh, for keeping your equipment clean of viruses and trojans and all that kind of stuff uh, and knowing what you're interacting with and so forth. Because the mobile industry grew up as a vertically integrated uh, service-based industry, um, that the security of the device and the network connection and so forth was fundamentally the responsibility of the operator. Uh, And in the old 2G world of voice and text messages, that was quite easy to do. Um, Today, Derek's smartphone will connect to maybe 10 or 15 different networks uh, in any one day. And so it's completely impossible, even if it was the habit and, and the intention, it would be completely impossible for the operator or uh, the device manufacturer-producer, to assure the security because you're not in control of the connection anymore. Um, And so the the pattern of personal use and um, personal behavior on the mobile internet, uh, which is very different to personal use and personal behavior on the fixed-line internet, needs to learn, uh, and we all need to learn, what safety looks like, uh, what interaction looks like, and so forth. So primarily a behavioural problem. Okay. Behavioural problem? Uh, I think the simple answer is no. Um, It's not an issue for the technology. Uh, Technology has one major issue with it, and that is people. Um, The people who use the technology, um, behavioural 
uh, understanding needs to, needs to uh, people need to be more confident that the, the information that they're sharing probably won't be violated because people actually really aren't that interested in the information that I'm sharing. Um, but also at the other end, if you take what happened to Sony, there was, there was no reason for that to happen. The technology was there for them to have a very secure environment, but the people at Sony, for whatever reason, didn't take the steps that they needed to to secure that platform. So, um, no, it's, it's a people problem, not a technology problem. Rory? Yeah, I totally agree. It's not a technology issue. Um, it, you know, back to the world we understand. So, so BlackBerry you know, is delighted to work with the White House, NATO, various armed forces around the world, police, in, uh, police right the way across the UK, getting access, you know, secure access to the police national computer. This isn't a technology issue at all. Um, and actually, the way that you know, uh, BlackBerry has invested in the cloud in the last 12 years is that it's the cloud infrastructure that actually delivers the security across multiple networks, uh, multiple carriers worldwide, um, you know, to make sure that connect- connections are secure. So technology is totally possible, and I think it's down to the technology partners uh, not to mandate that it's personal behavior or personal use. They've just got to put the technology and the security structure in there so that we can actually anticipate how people are going to need to use these services. I was just going to say, even if it isn't, quote-unquote, the fault of the machines, if people are liable to behave ineptly or incompetently or whatever, maybe then... The machines should adapt to that possibility or that risk. Totally right. Like the, 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 and it's, it's kind of, it really is a real oxymoron, right? Like, yes, people should worry about security. Yes, people should worry about their data. But quite honestly, it won't stop them exploring the mobile internet. Um, it's down to tech vendors or service providers or content partners to just make sure that the security principles are there. And I agree with uh, the other panelists. The technology is there. Simon. I, I think I'd agree. It's technology is there in place. It's down to people, yeah. Um, 300 phones left in taxes every day. A high proportion don't have any security. You know, people don't put the lock on because it's a bit inconvenient. So if someone pulls my phone out from a taxi and it's not locked, they can order on Amazon, they can read my Facebook. Yeah, It's a personal issue. I think the problem is that you know, legislating for that and dealing with that is quite a difficult issue. And you look at the, um, the director of cookies now, so you've got this new thing come in where you've now got to explain you've got cookies and each get acceptance. Yeah, Amazon is a brilliant machine for selling things. Very good for me finding things. It relies on cookies to make that possible. Yeah. So the, lots of the technology exists to make life better. You can then look at that from a privacy point of view. That's a problem from there. So I think the security is in place. It's a people issue. We have to be careful that to try and solve it, we don't jump in with size 9 to make a mess of everything. Derek, you kind of started the subject off. Do you want to add something? Well, I, I'm of the opinion that uh, technology companies put out technology that's about 80% working order. And they use, they use us to uh, see what the mistakes are. And then they, we, they then, for, for version 2 and 3 and 4, they correct it. Uh, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure I'll get told that that's not right by anybody in the audience. But certainly that's how Microsoft do it. Uh, I, I don't know if BlackBerry are the same. But uh, the fact of the matter is... The pressure to get the new product out is so fantastic that sometimes they look and think, help, we're going to miss the Christmas market. Well, it's too bad. Put it out with the glitches. Well, you know how many glitches there are. Just look at your computer. I think consumers will uh, react to that incredibly negatively. And I think if you look at technology companies that are doing very well in mobile space or any other space and dare to argue that reasons that other companies you mentioned might have challenges is that they're ignoring user experience. Okay, you take the Sony experience. Are you really telling me that they didn't know that they could be hacked? I don't believe you. 
I, I think it's a person, yeah, the people who are doing that didn't put sufficient emphasis on protecting that. It's like Bonnie and Clyde, you, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Hackers go after things like Sony because 75 million sets of data there. They have to protect that. But ultimately, people will gravitate towards brands that they trust with their data, which is why Google does very well. Huge amount of data, people trust it, Amazon, and move away from people they don't trust. PlayStation has a huge problem now getting people to come back to that yeah. because when my son wants to go on there, I'm going to think, well, actually, is it safe now? How do we know that? And according to Andrew, they knew, they knew very well what their problem might they, be they or could be. Well, if you look at the... Um, I mean, Sony actually got a slightly more embarrassing, in my opinion, thing happened to them shortly after the first issue, which was that they communicated with all of their, uh, their user base, told them a website that they could go to to reset their password, and the information that they needed to use to reset that password was information that had been stolen in the original hack. So, I mean, that's not an issue for technology. That's just Sony being pretty dim, in my opinion. Um, and, and most, well, many, I, I, won't, I, I don't have the stats to quantify it, but I would argue, because um, I was close to security in my days at Microsoft, that actually many security breaches are down to the shortcuts that you rightly say that people take. But that's, not, that, that's a problem for the relationship between people and technology, Sorry. not the technology Sorry, itself. I wasn't, I wasn't saying it doesn't happen. Right? Uh, for any stretch of the imagination, what I'm saying is that I think the implications for companies that take those shortcuts is brutal and arguably more brutal than it ever has been. Yep, I agree with that. Okay, it's now open to you. There are two roving microphones. We'll start with over here. Hugh Griffiths, uh, Digital Potential. Not a question, but a uh, comment to Derek. Um, first of all, search. Go and look at tap two. Secondly... On your video challenge, go and look at Skill Pill. Uh, thirdly, on your screen issue, go and look at uh, the research being done on OLED screens. Might be, might be useful for you. Right, I think Derek can feel a little internet session in the corner coming, coming on. Yeah, don't worry. Anybody over this side? I have a question for Derek as well. Could um, you just identify yourself, please? I, my name is Sachi. I am a media consultant. Just, um, just solely looking at mobiles for healthcare in developing countries uh, where it can be seen as an added privilege rather than an outright necessity. Uh, do you see a risk, not in terms of hardware, software, but um, the development of such applications as we take healthcare is increasingly into our own hands rather than seeking professional face-to-face -face consultation? So um, what's the trouble there, you know, with WebMD is people increasingly went online and started seeking their own, you know, blogging and seeking forums from other, you know, communities rather than... Well, you may remember Nicholas Negroponte took on uh, Microsoft, Intel and the whole world by saying you could have a small netbook at $100. And the closer he got to that final product, uh, Intel withdrew their investment, so did Microsoft, because they said that's a market we need to be in commercially then Microsoft was slightly embarrassed and actually put the money back. It's, it's not quite $100, but it is $200. Now, when the, why I'm saying that is that was five years ago. In India last year, the education department ordered 100 million tablets, thin, $25 each. Uh, there's some hiatus about the copyright of some of the information, technical information. But if you... If you, I forget your word you used, but disruptive, if governments were, wanted to be disruptive, they would get a thin version of everything in technology because you don't need much of it. You don't need 80% of what Microsoft gives you 
you, you only need tiny bits of that. If you had a thin version of a tablet at that sort of cost, they would fly out of the shops, and you would then get, in the, de- in the developing worlds, what we have here. I think that's not so far away. China, uh, China Mobile, which is the largest uh, mobile company in the world, is currently under another... Un- I think it's them. I, I can't be certain. But they've put into... One of uh, in, in the Mumbai into Mumbai, four million thin uh, smartphones, and they're free, uh, and they're trying to disrupt the market in which Vodafone is in, uh, Reliance and, and Tata, Docomo and others. Uh, I find that's rather interesting. It's the first time uh, the main technology people in China have started to say, you know what, maybe there's another market for us too. So, I, I think these things will come very cheap, very quickly. And, and I think we will go into self-assessment for health because we can't afford it. Matthew, is Vodafone encouraging people to make super-thin tablets? Uh, yes, we are. And, um, I mean, various different kinds of technology. We actually have a, a new thing for emerging markets, which is um, the cheapest way to get a sort of large-screen Internet experience. It's, it, we call it the web box. It's basically a keyboard which has a stripped-down browser in it and a mobile connection, and you plug it into any television. Uh, so you don't need to buy a screen. And, and, um, and that's been ordered by several African education ministries for schools. Um, but the point I wanted to make about, about healthcare is that uh, I think the real challenge for healthcare in the developed world is not a technological challenge. Um, for the last uh, seven, eight years, we've been working on uh, mobile applications of, for uh, developed world healthcare. And there are revolutionary things that you could do incredibly easily, uh, which would improve the efficiency of healthcare delivery, make it much more personal for the um, uh, for the patient, and, and so forth. The barrier is public service reform, public sector reform, um, and it is incredibly difficult to sell new, more efficient technological solutions into enormous Western um, public sector healthcare systems. We've had far more success selling healthcare solutions in the developing world um, because the gap there between sort of capability and provision is so huge. The same you referred to our mobile payment system in Kenya. I mean, that has taken off in the most, with the most remarkable speed because of the absence of any alternative. Um, and paradoxically, I think some of the most in, interesting innovation in healthcare systems is happening in the developing world because you don't have the procurement barriers that you have in the developed world. I'd love to see that change. Rory, it sounded as if you might want to answer that question you were murmuring at the beginning. Of no, the I just thought it was a great question. Because, <laughs> um, I mean, this is, the, this is the thing, right? Like, um, what we're liberating here, whether it's in healthcare or whether it's in education, is we're liberating the amount of information that an individual can get. And fundamentally, what you're doing is who's making the decision? Right, and um, you know, it's just—I just thought it was a fascinating question. Um, like, you know, personally, I, I believe that like the more information you give to people is the right kind of thing. But ultimately, there's decisions that have to be made by people that you know arguably may know better. But I think what's important is you know you, you give the uh, endpoints to collect the data that very knowledgeable people can make better decisions, right? Actually, in my doctor's surgery, it says, please don't bring more than four pages from the internet. <laughs> so, <laughs> just... Right. I'm Sandy Walkington. Would this panel like to comment on the issues raised in this morning's session on cybersecurity? 
and the issue about whole networks being knocked out if someone malicious were to explode a nuclear device in the upper atmosphere or similar terrorist or indeed um, hostile government activity? Because if we're going, as you say, more and more mobile, what are the implications and what are the defences? Andrew? Yeah, well, that was an interesting session to sit through this morning. It wasn't as scary as it could have been, although uh, there were some very scary points raised. Uh, I think, I mean, certainly as we depend more and more on technology generally, uh, then those, our vulnerability to those attacks becomes um, something that can have a much larger impact on, on all sorts of elements of our lives. I think from a mobile perspective specifically, um, the, the applications are becoming more important to us. As, as the adoption of the devices increases, therefore, as a channel to engage with an audience and customers, it becomes more more viable for businesses to move their, uh, their way of communicating onto a mobile platform, which is the, the revolution that we're going through at the moment, then certainly mobile becomes a much bigger element of the disruption that would be caused from such an attack. Uh, I, I won't pretend to have any insight or answer into how we avoid that, other than um, I'm going to be... But we are more vulnerable. Oh, we're certainly more vulnerable. And going more mobile. As we go more um, mobile, it's more vulnerable. I'm not sure, I'm not sure mobile um, necessarily adds to it. Um, Was that the drift of your question? Yes. No, I, I don't think mobile necessarily adds to it. Uh, it, it just moves the device that's not going to work anymore. Uh, Matthew? In fact, experience shows that the mobile networks are more resilient than the fixed networks. Um, if you look at the impact of the tsunami, the Japanese earthquake, that kind of thing, you know, major catastrophe... Because the, the mobile network propagates in a mesh format, uh, you can take out a bit of the mesh and it just navigates its way around it. Where, whereas the fixed line network relies on physical connections going from A to B, and if the right physical or the wrong physical connection is cut, then you lose an entire area of network. Um, so that doesn't deal with the sort of mega catastrophe, and any system is vulnerable to the mega catastrophe the power systems, the water systems, all the rest of it. And I think this is one of the, the prime areas of, of government focus. I've been very struck at um, how much attention to this our Prime Minister here is devoting and the President of the United States is devoting. I have to say we don't see anything like as much in most other European countries. Um, I think if you're looking from a sort of public policy respons- responsibility at the role of government in this digital world, um, then government taking the cyber security seriously as a key part of the vital national infrastructure, just as important as water, uh, just as important as power, uh, this is really important. Um, and as I say, I think the focus this government is putting to it, the US government putting to it, is very strong. Uh, but I think there are a number of other governments who could um, profitably look much more closely into this area. Anybody else want to come in on this? Derek, yes. So you've uh, been a candidate in a general election. So when... When you, went knocking, when you went knocking on the doors, when, when did anyone ask you about cyber-terrorism? Yes. Uh, when did anyone ask you about anything to do with the internet or privacy or child pornography? Did anyone ever raise it in any, any time that you were canvassing? Probably not directly. Okay. No, nor me, just so you know. In 13 years I had a go at this. And the reason is, is because it's, it's hidden. So if you go to your... Uh, uh, police force and ask them how many people look at cybersecurity. If there's more than two, I'll be stunned. Uh, 
We've got 43 police forces in England and Wales. That doesn't mean that we've got very many people looking at it. If you go to the Met Police, I can tell you there's probably less than a dozen people. So the ramping up that we're talking about currently is happening, but we are somewhere behind the curve. And I understand, although I haven't seen this in writing, the government has got a cybersecurity summit in November. Uh, well, there we are, Matthew's not nodding. Uh, I think that's being run by the Foreign Office, I think. Maybe because that, well, they were hacked about six weeks ago, and this was their first experience, or it's the first experience they knew. Uh, but it, it, it is... The first experience they revealed. They revealed, yeah, maybe that was it. Uh, so we've a lot to do, but we're getting... We're, it is certainly on the front page in number 10. Julia. I had a question. How much are you prepared to disclose about the investment you're making in serious long-term future casting, trending? You know, I, the layperson, finds it pretty difficult. I'm researching a book about the age of information overload, and I'm finding it pretty difficult to access, perhaps Derek's, new Internet Institute will help, but access centralised data and analytics about, you know, usage and modelling. How much, if it's the user experience, surely you are wholly dependent on a kind of advanced focus group that is going to tell you what the requirements are from a business and infrastructure point of view, but also from a consumer point of view. So right now, my 12-year-old stepson... Uh, 12-year-old son and 18-year-old stepson solemnly informed me with complete certainty that BlackBerry is the only mobile phone they will ever want because of the messaging. Is that the prediction that the 12 to 18-year-old bandwidth is going to be interested in that? In, do you know what I mean? So how, we get, how do we know what we don't know? We've got a lot of data. We want more data. Matthew. Um, it's... Uh, it's a very difficult question to answer because the, the thing that you are using um, is a product of a series of very different processes. And the experience you're having on it is a product of a series of very different processes. Within the device, you've got uh, a huge amount of R&D and development and so forth. And the lead times for the development of devices are relatively long. In the network that connects it, um, you've got uh, billions of pounds and euros and so forth of investment, and the time it takes to build uh, a high-performance wide area network is, depending on which country you are, the geography and so forth, anything from 10 to 15 years. Um, And uh, upgrading an entire network and the technology is getting better at doing that, but it still takes a long time. Um, But when you get into the application layer, you've got an extraordinary dynamism of development. People trying things, some of them succeeding spectacularly. I met uh, the end of last week in Finland uh, the guy who founded Angry Birds. Um, And I can't remember how long he founded it, about two years ago. He's got about 250 million users so far. And he very calmly said, you know, my ambition is to be a bigger entertainment brand than Disney and I'm going to do that in another two years. And he might succeed, who knows? Um, And, you know, that's from... 100 and now 120 people in funny little Finland have just sort of gone off and done that. Um, so you can achieve extraordinary penetration across these platforms in the top layer with developments that can be done what we saw in the earlier session. You know, they can be done in front of your eyes um, in a matter of seconds, if not, if not minutes. Um, and, and so that level can be incredibly responsive to what the customer wants, what the consumer wants, 
um, in a very dynamic way and can keep evolving and changing and testing and, and the price of failure is fairly small there. The price of failure at the device level, as Nokia are discovering at the moment, uh, and at the network level, is huge. Um, and, but equally, the bets that we're having to take at the network level are more about trends in general use and types of te- broad types of technology that will be used across the network, broad patterns of behavior, and much less about the individual thing, which is going to go wild next, next week, next month. So, so I think you've got a different set of trends with a different set of responses, all of which are coming together for you as a user in, in your hand, uh, and hopefully coherently. And, and it's that coherence in a very complex ecosystem which is, I think, the, the real challenge for the industry as a whole. You will notice that during the course of that long and elegant answer, Matthew didn't promise a single new item of data to Julia. Simon? <laughs> this is a business where no one knows anything. You know, I don't think that BlackBerry knew that BBM was going to take off in the way that it did. No one predicted the iPhone would change the way it did. In fact, if you look at the data, the first iPhone made no difference to the internet usage. It was the iPhone 3G where the speed took off from there. Angry Birds is fantastic. It's the 51st game that that studio produced. I have no idea what the other 50 are because they were miserable failures. So no one knows anything. And if they did, Google would have predicted Facebook and built that. Nokia wouldn't have the problem they have now. So it's very hard because what we're doing, we're dealing with consumers who find bits of technology and work out, does this help me or doesn't it help me? So BBM works really well. SMS has taken off. Um, DVD, you know, being huge. Sky Plus gets adopted. Yeah, we're trying to work out what consumers, you know, are going to do with this. And you go back to the um, Sony example. If you ask people do they want a machine where you can listen to music walking around, they'll say no. You produce a Walkman, and they say yes in millions. So I don't think anyone knows anything. Everyone would like to be ahead of that curve. But, you know, you've got loads of very clever people innovating, putting stuff out there. Oh, that did work, that didn't work, and try and go from there. So we're in very almost, you know, biological sort of state here. You're putting lots of things out and seeing what you know, takes root and what doesn't. But I, think, I think there are some, some rules in that. Um, and I, on the train on the way here, I, um, I sat in front of uh, uh, two school children. They must have been you know, 15, 16. And uh, they picked out their Blackberries and they said, look, this Blackberry thing, it's really sick, isn't it? Well, sorry, it was in it, I think. And, like, you know, we didn't predict that. You're dead right. Like, you know, um, we put out pin-to-pin-based technology and turned it into BBM, and it was a social phenomenon in the U.K. and Indonesia and Saudi Arabia and a whole ton of places. Um, I think, to, 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 to Simon's point, that there are a couple of rules as you kind of look to, to build new consumer services. One is, uh, and I quote uh, Mike Harris on this, who founded First Direct and founded Egg, um, the worst thing you can do is ask the consumer what they want. Um, it's much better to observe how they're using this stuff or how they do stuff, whether it's in hospitals or education or, or any part of the Middle East, or, or sorry, any part of Africa or the Middle East. It's better to be observationalist in what you're trying to capture. And then secondly, you've just got to try more things. Um, and some of them will land. And as a, you know, as a, a company, we spend nearly 7% of our revenue on R&D. A lot of it is in trial. Um, and just to comment on some of the things that Derek said earlier, I think that there are, you know, these are billion-dollar industries. Um, I think there are many industries that survive with more than three competitors. Um, I'm GE schooled, and I'm told that you know, if you get more than three or four competitors, that tells you you're in a market. Um, and I think the reality is, is that it's not um, vendors or analysts or commentators like us that tell people what platforms are going to be around in the next two, three years. It's consumers. 
Um, and the numbers we care about are the number of consumers that are choosing the BlackBerry platform, whether it be for BBM or whether they're choosing for secure email in the financial services sectors. Co consumers will dictate um, which platforms and which devices get used in every market. Derek, is your Internet Policy Institute going to be in time to help Julia with her book? Oh, Julia, Steve Jobs has never, ever trialed anything. Do you know they don't at Apple? They don't ask consumer focus groups to come in. They say, this is what is required. They then turn to Jonathan Ive and say, now design it. Um, you know, I don't know another company. That, Jonathan meets Steve twice a day. I don't know another company that invests so much time and effort in design. And other companies could learn from that. In fact, when I spent a week at Samsung, they got the message. If you look at Samsung's products five years ago, you wouldn't have bought them. Now you rush to buy them, whether it's the television, the fridge the phone, the tablet. They're absolutely stunning. And I'll tell you why, because they're, uh, they're using different designers. <laughs> Andrew, Data. where did Julia find it? Um, I have to agree with Simon, I'm afraid, because uh, our customers ask us all the time, who else has done this? How did they do? Were they successful? And, and we're really early still in, in the economy that we're discussing. Um, and that kind of data either isn't available or isn't being freely shared. Uh, I think where we are, though, in the, in, the in the evolution of things, if we take an app perspective, um, we're now at the point where our customers are taking projects seriously enough that they understand that consumer focus groups are things that they should do and are prepared to invest the time and the money in doing that. But that's only because the audience is there now to build a, a case to, uh, to invest the time in doing that. But um, the availability of data to support business cases in this, in this world really aren't there at the moment. Is it things that are moving so fast? I was saying 10 years ago there was the Faith Popcorn prediction. I mean, prediction was big. What's happened to prediction? Is it that we're just overrun with the now? It's just celebrated 100 years. But, but in the 50s, late 50s, they said there would be four large computers for the whole world. Because they were still on mainframes this size of this building. They just thought... Well, you know, suddenly along comes, uh, well, not just Apple, but, you know, there were a number of uh, people at the end of the 60s and early 70s thinking about the small mini-computer. But Bill Gates was quoted as saying he couldn't understand why Steve Jobs went back to Apple. Indeed. Right, there's no future there. So, so um, I don't know, I, you know, predictions, I don't think predictions are worth much. Right, I think what's much more important is to stay close to your consumers and, you know, do trial things, right, uh, and, and see what things get, you know, what, th what things land and how things are picked up. We spend a lot of time working with startups, and you know, the fashion app, I think, a very valid way of working is you know, agile iteration. So design something, launch it, see if consumers use it, and keep changing. And the coolest word in startups now is pivot, which means, oh, we've pivoted the business and started doing something else, which really means we were doing that and it failed miserably, so we've got a plan B. But pivot sounds much better when you've taken $20 million of you know, investment money um, to do it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen... I was uh, coming to think that uh, a few moments ago that um, those promising clinking noises from up there might mean that we would wrap up at half past five, which we will do, and have a drink, and you can pester the panel if that's what you want to do. I'm going to take two last questions, one from the gentleman over there and one from Helen, and then we'll be done, starting there. Uh, Hugh Griffiths from Digital Potential. Um, just to reinforce the point about the, the panel, um, Mike Lazaridis, founder of RIM, 
who is a, uh, who, and we've seen the organisation that, that, that Mike has built and been responsible uh, together with, uh, with his co-founder. In 2003, in conversation with him, he told me there was no need to ever put um, a camera in a BlackBerry. So, but Mike, thankfully, listened to his customers. My question, however, is that um, we've talked a lot today about security, data privacy. The, co- the panel liked to comment on the view that, um, a personal view of mine, but I think it's shared by others, that given the wealth of data that now exists within mobile operators, within social networks, that we could foresee a world in the future where, in exchange for use of that data, consumers make a conscious choice of an exchange of value with uh, maybe their mobile operator or maybe uh, other brands. Okay, I'm going to take Helen's question and then we'll just go for a quick last go around. Thanks, George. Um, it, it's on um, the question of privacy again. And the, the way that the panel spoke about privacy earlier on in the session was that it was the responsibility of individual um, mobile technology users to protect their own um, privacy. Um, but I wonder how much in the future um, they think that actually um, mobile technology companies are going to have to kind of be privacy campaigners themselves. I'm thinking here um, in particular of the BlackBerry story in, in India, um, which kind of blew up when, when a group of us went over to India recently at the Institute of Ideas. And it, it does seem to be the case that corporates are going to actually have to, to protect privacy against um, government in particular. And I wonder whether that's going to become more and more the case over the next few years. Okay. Wealth of data, exchange of value, privacy campaigning. Matthew. Um, On the data exchange of value, I I can see things going in that direction because I think um, people are becoming much more conscious of how much of their data is stored around the place um, and also of the various different uses that are made of it. Um, (laughs) And I think we're we're getting to a point where the public acceptability of the sort of click once here and, you know, we can do what you want with your data uh, is going to be called into question. Um, and companies that store large amounts of data, including uh, companies like Vodafone, are going to have to have a much more direct relationship with the individual customer about what's happening to their data. And obviously, uh, that's going to be a relationship which either in um, type of service, so, you know, you want... Uh, intuitive services that are helping you through your day, well, we can only do that if we can use your data to provide you with those services. Or in terms of some form of deal that, you know, you uh, let us use your data for this and you get a free pizza when you pass Pizza Express or whatever. Uh, I I can see all these kinds of things happening in the future. And I think that um, the sort of the value equation will evolve there uh, and it'll be driven by consumers um, by a combination of opportunity as the sophistication of service develops and concern about uh, where the boundaries are in terms of my personality and where it's going. On, <clears throat> on the question of, of, of sort of res- government privacy campaigning, all, all that kind of thing, uh, to me, this is fundamentally a question of democratic accountability. Uh, every government of every country in which we operate has the right to do things uh, to the network and to individuals' communications on the network. This is something that no government will ever say it's not going to have. And actually, it's vital for national security that they do have it. 
um, some of the big terrorist plots that have been foiled in the United Kingdom have been foiled precisely because uh, the government comes to people like us and says, we want to track that person, we want to know what this person's saying, and so forth. And thank God for that. I'm really glad they do. Um, but in the United Kingdom, that system is a completely audited system, um, independently audited. Uh, we cannot provide uh, our own systems track you know, what we've done, um, and the auditors come and look at whether in each case that we've done it, um, we've done it in response to a warrant, uh, and the warrant is then audited back, you know, how was it delivered and so forth. Um, and so I think in this country you can have a pretty high degree of assurance that uh, the decision by a government agency that it needs to start researching something and it needs help from the mobile companies in order to do so is a serious decision taken for serious reasons and there are independent people who are verifying that the end-to-end the system works. Um, India is an interesting example because it's a democratic country uh, and actually has quite a highly developed audited system. The, the problem that the, the Indians perceived was that there were types of communication developed, which were the classic communications to which, just like the UK government, uh, they had access under controlled circumstances, um, and there were types of communications developing to which they didn't. And, um, and what they decided to do was to enforce a provision which has been in the Indian mobile licenses and telecoms licenses for, for years, which required the operators to make it possible for them to intercept all forms of communication happening across the network. Um, now, in fact, with BlackBerry, particularly with BlackBerry corporate services, it's impossible for a network operator to do this. It's impossible for BlackBerry to do it as well because the keys sit in the corporation which is using uh, the BlackBerry service. And, and so we're in a sort of standoff phase with the Indians at the moment because um, they're saying, well, the license says you've got to do this. We're saying, well, that's fine, but actually we can't. Um, so do you want to tell Goldman Sachs, UBS, um, Tesco, whoever, major investors in India, that they can't use their corporate communication systems in India? Because, you know, that's the implication of what you're saying, uh, and that would be, in, and major Indian companies as well, and that would be an enormous barrier to trade. So I don't know where that particular one will end up. And then you've got um, countries, uh, and there are some you know, interesting cases over the last few months, where there is no de- democratic accountability to the systems at all. Uh, there, what we try and do as a company is to engage with the government of, of the country in question to help them understand uh, that their own ability to sustain the systems that they need uh, in order to ensure national security will be helped by a properly audited system um, and to bring to them the sort of experience we have here in the Netherlands and Germany and so forth of, of very well-functioning systems which, which do that. And because they do it, have very little public concern about how they're operating because the general sense is that you know, it's all being over, there's oversight and, and scrutiny and so forth, and so it's okay. Now, I can't claim that we've had spectacular success in doing that yet, um, but we've got a number of governments who are interested in taking the dialogue further. Andrew, <coughs> you, can, you can pause if you like. Yeah, I'd like to answer it. <laughs> um, actually, you're, you're, the first question touches on where I was trying to go with my opening statements about where I think mobile ultimately will go, which is um, this personal frustration that I have, that I have all of this data out there, that I'm leaving with all sorts of uh, different companies that are distributed out across the internet, and I'm not getting a lot of value for that other than the direct services that they're providing. And if I can bring all of that information together and have applications that exploit an aggregated view of all that information, then I may be prepared to pay for 
services that are ultra-personalised because it's exploiting this aggregated view of that content. I'll give you an example. I'm a, I'm a Love Film user. Love using Love Film, but I do find that some of the films take a long time to come through because they're popular films and they don't have enough discs. Now, I walk past HMV every day on the way to the station in the morning. Now, it would be great if HMV could tell me that they have that film that I haven't been able to see for the last three weeks and give me a 10% coupon. Now, I'd kind of pay for that service because it's ultra-personalised, because it's a derivative of the aggregation of all this content, uh, sorry, of all this um, personal information. The problem then comes when you coalesce all of this data, how you protect it, how, how do you have some kind of trust in wherever this place is that's aggregating this content. I think the content that describes me will still be distributed, but there will be a place I go to create this aggregated view of me. Um, and there are people that I trust, like Vodafone, for example, with whom I have a, a trusted relationship already. They have my credit card information. They know where I go. Um, I would be more than happy for them to be the home of that aggregated um, persona. Uh, Facebook, perhaps not, because they're in a territory I don't understand. They're a very young organization. I'm sure there are probably um, you know, perhaps different approaches to privacy than I would have. But the post office... The um, Vodafone, there are, there are bodies that I, I already trust and would entrust with that aggregated view of myself. Um, that's just from my perspective. I, yeah. Um, yeah, really quickly, I think um, uh, the, the consumer's moved on from a highly transactional uh, relationship. Like they don't want to buy things from brands, consume them, use them, and then go back out to tender. What they want is a life cycle relationship with the brands that they really care about and the brands that they love. Um, and we're seeing mobile being used by tremendous brands in the CPG industry, content industry, media industry, to have new relationships with consumers they've never had before. Um, we all use Facebook, Twitter, we leave our footprint on Facebook and Twitter and brands are already tapping into the footprints that we leave online. And I think um, it'll be the intelligent companies that are able to take that data and make real-time decisions about what consumers want or, or, or their needs are next. Um, but you know, don't dismiss the importance of mobile in, the, in terms of capture and then using that, that information. Um, and I think on the, on the security point, look, I mean, um, we're really proud of the way that we, we, we do security in the corporate space. We're really proud of the security levels we have and the privacy levels, rather, we have in the consumer space, right? Like, it's, it's really, really important to us, and we think the, the, the principles of the mobile internet will be defined on how private the information is. Um, and that's our point of view, and we've invested very heavily in our infrastructure to enable that. Um, I think it's also fair to say that legislation in any country is probably catching up with how mobiles are being used. Um, in the States, just before Christmas, um, a mobile user had their personal data wiped off their phone, their photos, their music. Um, even though they'd signed a waiver to say that it was a company-liable phone, they took that uh, employer to court, and they won because of precedence. Right? So, so I think you know, legislation is ca- catching up. I think governments are catching up. And I think it's a case of us working with governments um, to find out you know, the right elements of lawful access and how it needs to work in various, in various countries. But you know, we want to go into that like with our consumers knowing that from a corporate use case or from a, a consumer use case that privacy and security is really important to the way we work. So two quick answers. Um, I think that you know, the mobile device you know, holds this really valuable information about your profile, you know, where you've been, what you've been doing, etc. That's very valuable to you. It's very valuable to commerce 
players. Eric Schmidt talks of the day when phones will be free because Google can make money from the advertising and you know, subsidise it to that extent. That will only work if the advertising you get is useful advertising rather than spam. The Kindle, now you can get it for $25 in the States if you accept advertising from there. So those models are starting to emerge, and we'll see that. But no one's going to take a free phone to get loads of spam. It has to be an advertising model where it's, you know, I don't want to waste anything. I want to talk to people who are interested in what we do from there. That will happen. I think on the security thing, I watch spooks. I just think, okay, you watch that. That's happening. You live your life accordingly. Because, you know, I'm fascinated. Every single car in London, they've got a number plate of. Facial recognition. The guy from MI5 was found locked in his own bag. They, found a, they showed him on TV two days later outside Harrods. They've got facial recognition, can find things. Worrying about the privacy of mobile phones feels like it's relatively small compared to the surveillance we're under already. So I like to watch spooks and live my life accordingly. Should I ever, unfortunately, get the, you know, the attention of MI5, that's what they can do. Don't be surprised by it. Derek? Well, I've seen, I've seen two biographical uh, uh, mobile devices uh, with two separate handheld uh, companies. One was uh, uh, this. This was uh, overseas, but if I, if you know where Blue Water is, you get the or, or you know Westfield or whatever it is. So you went in with it, and it chinged, and it said, "Welcome." Uh, last time you here, you bought you know Gap, Prada, Levi's. You had lunch here. We're offering now a two for one for Levi's at twenty five dollars. A yes, B no, C wait. Uh, and for some reason, that has just not taken off. And I've seen another system, which was a location uh, a system on a, on a mobile operator, where on Mondays particularly, where restaurants are generally freer, so are theatres, because we've had a weekend, and we generally don't go out so much on Mondays, whole range of three-for-twos, two-for-ones, five-for-fours, champagne-free till this. And again, for some reason, that hasn't taken off. And that is, I'm itching to get those, those things. So maybe you'll tell me they do exist. But, uh, on the, uh, you know, you raise, that's a huge question. You know, I mean, India's had real, and so's the Middle East, you know, with Blackberry. They've struggled, really struggled about, is this our country? Do we own, you know, do we give a license? And then the technology company's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 we, you know, we're behaving according to your license. You know, you can't have keys. I mean, it's largely caused by one incident in Dubai, but, but it's had repercussions for BlackBerry. But I think in the end, you know, where, where's the citizen, you know, just to finish, where does the citizen go then on privacy? So say we have a privacy law. Here we are. We've got a joint uh, committee in the House of Commons. So maybe we go, okay, we're going to say this. Well, what happens if France and Germany and America and Canada say, well, we don't like that? So where are we going to take the privacy argument? Because we are, you know, it's mobile. And, and I'm, I think there is, a, there is somewhere we've got to sort of tease out over the next two years. An agenda for editorial intelligence's next conference, perhaps. Actually, we've run, uh, as it turned out, uh, completely to time. So therefore, it only remi- remains for me to ask you if you would please to thank our panel. <laughs>